Hi, I'm Vincent Andrasani, and this is episode 38 of The Place of Sound. Welcome to one of the final episodes of the year. A quick thanks to all those who've been following along or even dipped in and out of some of the many episodes that we produced through 2022. There have been some really great student projects that have aired, and we hope you've enjoyed listening to them. This episode will contain a couple of new pieces, both of which are airing on the show for the first time. The pieces are audio essays that were produced in comms 5218, Sound, Space, and the City, a graduate-level course in the Communication and Media Studies program here at Carleton University. The first of which is by current MA student Claudia Gleason, and the second is by recent graduate Harris Jefferson. The course ran in winter semester of 2022, so from January to April, and it explored the ideas of sound, listening, and place. Both of these projects you'll listen to deal precisely with these themes. Claudia begins the episode with a project titled The Sounds of Freedom and Other Myths, which is an informative and very personal take on her experience of the Freedom Convoy. She describes how this moment affected her day to day and what it meant not only to her as a young woman, but also to some of the more vulnerable communities in this city. At the heart of her analysis is the exploration of sound as a weapon and as a means of claiming space, and in this case, asserting a particular political position in places where it's unwelcome. It's an excellent piece, and it was played earlier this year at the Urban Imaginaries Festival, held in association with Arlington Five, a coffee house at the corner of Arlington and Bank in Centertown. Enjoy. Behind the organization, the associated Western separatists, other organizers of part of the convoy, have been openly talking about the hate speech. In every situation, every story, there is a before and an after. Before getting braces, after getting braces. Before taking a class, after taking a class. Before the truck convoy, after the truck convoy. This is my before. I live in downtown Ottawa, surrounded by things to do, places to see, people to interact with. I thrived off of the noise and the chaos of it all, spending my weekends taking walks around Centertown, visiting new coffee shops, checking out vintage clothing stores, and going to local bars with friends. I've mentioned previously that I often refer back to the notion of sound walking around the city as a means of grounding myself when my anxiety levels rise. This was recommended to me by my therapist, who encouraged me to take walks without earphones and to pay close attention to the sounds of my environment as a way to tune back into the present. So what happens when that ability is taken away? On January 28, 2022, thousands of protesters and transport trucks began occupying the streets of Ottawa, 
pledging to remain until all COVID-19 mandates and restrictions were removed. The so-called Freedom Convoy descended on the city, making their arrival known with the incessant honking of their horns, chanting of the word freedom, and their large physical presence in surrounding neighborhood streets. At the epicenter of it all, my anxiety levels rose quickly and drastically. The morning of January 29th, the first Saturday of the occupation, I stopped by my favorite coffee shop to grab a breakfast sandwich. The store was filled with protesters, many of which were not wearing masks and were subsequently harassing store employees who reminded them that at the time, masks were still mandatory. I left quickly only to be heckled by a woman with a megaphone outside the store for following provincial protocols. This was the first of many incidents over the next month that caused me to fear for my safety as a resident of the city, especially as a young woman in the city. I was unable to sleep, to eat, to complete any schoolwork, or to go on my beloved sound walks without being harassed. I was in distress. Finally, after several unbearable days, I called my father, hysterically begging him to come pick me up. As we drove away from the city, two hours into the countryside, I swore to him that my ears continued to ring with the sound of truck horns, and it was days before the phantom noise stopped. This is my after. No matter my personal or political beliefs about the situation in its entirety, there is one thing of which I am certain. As a result of the convoy, I have been traumatized by the sounds of the city. In the piece Sound Walking on the Edges, Paola Casamelli Messina discusses her intersectional identity of being a queer woman of color walking the streets of Sao Paulo, Brazil as a sonic citizen. Her work considers the exclusion of the experiences of people of color when critically examining sound walking as a method for sound studies research and artistic practices. When reflecting upon her childhood and young adulthood in Sao Paulo, she remembers her sensory experience of the city as one mediated by fear, segregation, and vigilance. Though I, as a white woman, hold a considerable amount of privilege that women of color do not, I relate to Paola's experience in some ways. I, too, reflect on the seemingly infinite weeks of the convoy as a sensed experience, one driven by fear, vigilance, and anxiety. Walking the city as a young woman comes with its fair share of challenges as is. There are streets I deliberately avoid, parts of my neighborhood I will never explore alone, a light pink sound alarm attached to my keychain at all times. Though I have often relied on sound walks to help decrease my stress levels, the sound of street harassment is one that I am always acutely aware of and prepared for at any given moment. The addition of often aggressive protesters, loud noise, and right-wing and white supremacist ideology that doesn't necessarily bode well with the inclusive and diverse streets of Centertown adds another layer to my existence in the city throughout the duration of the occupation. This was the case for many other women at that time. In a statement posted to Twitter by Cornerstone's Emergency Women's Shelter, located in downtown Ottawa, the organization noted that the ongoing protest was re-traumatizing women in the city, particularly those who are scared to go outside, and has caused significant anxiety and distress for staff and shelter residents. This resulted in the hospitalization of several women due to increased trauma from noise and fear. It is impossible to dismiss that while the convoy impacted a significant number of residents, it has disproportionately affected marginalized groups the most, women included. The question of what does it mean to listen means something different to me now. The presence of truck horns and protesters, and the anxiety they induced, introduced to me for the very first time that sound can be used as violence, and forced listening can take on and evoke new, negative emotions than they once did. In her article, Sound Mapping as Critical Cartography, Engaging Publics in Listening to the Environment, Milena Drumova introduces sound maps. 
Using frameworks developed in human geography, she analyzes sound mapping as an artifact of public communication. Sound maps, she writes, are geographic collections of individual sonic impressions of place normally involving geotagged audio recordings. The impacts of the noise on downtown residents during the convoy were so dire that an interactive sound map was created to better assist in the understanding of the impact of the protest's noise. The tool allowed users to see and hear just how impactful the honking was, and for the first time allowed those living outside of the downtown core to indulge in the horrific sensory experience that was continuously plaguing residents. The Lapaya all note that there is no absolute definition of what constitutes noise, and thus this definition differs from person to person, the sheer volume and amount of honking significantly surpassed any type of noise policy regulations in Ottawa. These policies, of course, were not enforced, even after honking in the downtown core was banned. The entire situation led to questions of urban planning, political responsibility, and why there was such inaction by Ottawa City Police until almost a month had passed. Namely, the main question on everyone's mind was, how could they have let this happen? Though many consider the city to be a singular totality, as Anthony King explores in his chapter Playing and Replaying Diasporas and Histories, our lived experience of the city is actually quite fragmented. Socially and spatially, we tend to only occupy a small portion of the city, an apartment, a house, or a neighborhood. While I have always considered this to be a strength of living in Ottawa, meaning that there remains to be many other parts for me to explore and potentially one day call home, it meant that in the midst of his occupation, my fragment of the city was only that, a fragment. Not everyone was impacted, which meant that being a small neighborhood in a city full of others, my neighbors and I were utterly abandoned by those designated to protect us. Several weeks have passed since the occupation came to its much-anticipated end, but that doesn't mean that my uneasiness about the city nor the sounds that come from it has. It is a continuous effort on my part to re-educate my senses. I still jump every time I hear a loud honk. I am weary of large groups of people and the word freedom. I see the city differently now, and I hear it differently now too. The sound of the convoy has become a means of evoking memory, one that I am instantaneously brought back to each time I hear loud noises, particularly trucks and horns. And though peace has been restored to the streets I once walked leisurely without worry, seeking out sounds to bring me comfort, my perception of the city is forever changed. I walk cautiously now, bracing myself for noise and harassment, forever changed by the sounds of the Freedom Convoy. The second audio essay is by Paris Jefferson and is titled The Sonic Social Order. Paris offers not only a thoughtful analysis, but also her own first-hand experience on the politics of voice, and in particular, the politics of one's accent. As an actor who hailed from Australia but spent much time in England, Paris learned quickly the types of sounds that were socially accepted and the ways that she needed to sonically present herself in order to find work. The piece thoughtfully incorporates theoretical analysis, historical storytelling, and personal experience to make an important and often overlooked point, which is that society is stratified and identity is expressed not only on the basis of how people look, but also in terms of how they sound. Hi, I'm Paris Jefferson, and this is The Sonic Social Order. It is not only what you say, but more importantly, how it is heard. In England, accents are a code 
that create and maintain social boundaries, like invisible barbed wire. Voice is a marker which immediately tells the listener your place in the sonic social order. And consequently, voice determines one's success or failure as an actor in England, and it would determine mine. To explore this theme, I will rely on a concept by Ursula Franklin and weave in and out of voice and the actor. But before that, I will take a brief journey with a famous author whose experience, in part, mirrored mine in London. In 1924, at age 24, P. L. Travers, the author of Mary Poppins, set sail from her homeland in Australia to seek her fame and fortune as a writer in England. Once she arrived in London, however, she quickly changed her native accent to one of an upper-class English accent. She hid her down-under origins from even her closest friends until she was well into her 90s. What drove her to do this? Australia was originally designed by the political establishment in England to be the world's largest jail. As Robert Hughes notes in his seminal book, The Fatal Shore, quote, thousands of the undeserving poor from the lowest class sailed in shackles and chains from England and Ireland, alleviating the fear from the English ruling class that it was endangered from below, end quote. Travis's Australian accent would have been heard not only as colonial working class, but that of convict class by the literati and publishing circles she wanted to be accepted by. Flash forward many decades later, I too, at age 24, left Australia to seek my fame and fortune in London, but as an actor. Once I arrived, I was politely mocked in certain circles about my accent. I can only imagine how people reacted to Travis's accent in 1924. My London agent quickly informed me that if I ever wanted to work in the UK, then I had to change my accent from Australian to received pronunciation, known as RP, the accent that you might hear on a BBC political thriller or a medieval film the one Travis adopted as her own. RP and other accents are mirrored in the roles actors are cast, reflecting the vocal soundscape of England. As Stephen Feld notes, soundscapes are maps through which a space can be decoded just as the Basavi songs in Papua New Guinea are vocalised mappings of the rainforest, English accents are vocalised mappings of the urban jungle. Ursula Franklin's concept 
of holistic and prescriptive technologies are helpful in understanding these mappings. Holistic technologies are associated with the notion of craft, where the artisan produces work that is one of a kind within their particular and site-specific location. They are regional. Conversely, prescriptive technologies were born of the Industrial Revolution with the systematic goal of producing a chain of identical products. They could be made anywhere in England. Franklin notes in political terms, prescriptive technologies are designed for compliance, where, quote, we are ever more conditioned to accept that there is only one way of doing it, end quote. She notes that a holistic system of knowledge is not as valued as the prescriptive model, and as a result, we are missing out on a broader spectrum of valuable, useful, and differentiated knowledge. Regional accents in England are site-specific and produced over time and space, passed down generationally. For example, the East London Cockney voice has a distinctive slang and accent. Their site-specific regional sound telegraphs working class. Conversely, the upper-class RP accent can be from anywhere in England. Someone from the North could have the same accent as someone from the South, a systematic product of being privately educated and moneyed. As Milena Drumeva observes, quote, differences in the mode of communication are often as important as differences in the mode of production, for they involve developments in the storing, analysis, and creation of human knowledge, end quote. And I was about to understand what these modes of production meant. In my first vocal class, my voice coach abruptly interrupted me and said, if you drop your vowel sound there, they won't listen and think, oh, she's Australian and give you a pass. They will think you are from the East End of London, from the working class, and immediately conclude what level of education you have and what kind of car your father drives. Fifteen minutes later, he corrected me of a distinctly Australian vocal habit and said, you never go up tonally at the end of a question or sentence because that shows a lack of confidence. You lower your voice with a question because you are informing someone with what will take place. It is not up for debate. For example, do you want to go to the beach? We're leaving at 12, and would you get a towel and one for me too? Do you want to go to the beach? We're leaving at 12, and would you get a towel and one for me too? By the time my voice classes were completed, I had acquired the voice of authority. The same English society that had met me months before now wondered if my father was a lord 
a barrister, or a politician. My newly modified accent had lifted me to a position on the ladder of birthright and breeding, not because of what I was saying, but how I was saying it. That is, how it was heard, and what was heard was power. As Kate Lacey points out, without a listener, speech is nothing but noise in the ether, and I made the right noise. In my research for the role of Nina Fisher-Holmes in The Crown Prosecutor, I spent several weeks in magistrates' courts in London, a mini version of the pyramidic structure of English society. The magistrates were, without fail, upper class. Those being charged were, without exception, working class. At least this was my experience. We faithfully replicated this vocal order in the Crown Prosecutor, and as such the show was accepted by the reviewers as a legitimate example of English culture. It was vocally precise, predictable, with every accent in its appropriate place. But what happens when these vocal structures are reversed? And what's more, in a fabled and revered story of English chivalry, like that of King Arthur and his knights? In his article, which tracks the professional reviewer's reception to the 2017 big-budget film King Arthur, Legend of the Sword, A. Arwen Taylor observes that their criticisms of the film as an adaptation are often implicitly concerned with class. He continues that the film's use of Cockney for the character of King Arthur, recognized as, quote, a low-class dialect, is a point reviewers seize upon with particular insistence who long for received pronunciation, the trans-regional British accent associated with high prestige and educated speakers, end quote. Some reviewers even wrote their missives in Mockney, a version of Cockney to further illustrate the absurdity, stupidity, and baseness of this lower-class Arthur's accent. In the mouths of the elite's more privileged speakers, mockery is used to accentuate the differences between language systems to, quote, emphasize the superiority of more prestigious varieties over marginalized dialects and languages, end quote. In 2021, the epic film Dune was released. Of all the reviews I read, including the same sources that Taylor refers to for King Arthur, I could not find one reference to the actual superpower in the film, the voice. Unlike our Cockney version of King Arthur, the voice's accent is RP, and once mastered over many years, has the power to force people to do as it commands. It is only available to the royal household of Padishah 
and the powerful religious order of the Bene Gesserit. However, nowhere in Frank Herbert's novel Dune, published in 1965, is there a description of the sound of the voice. It has been assumed by the filmmakers to be RP. But had the voice been regional, there would have been a critical uproar. Even in our fantasy worlds, we are represented vocally in the correct sonic societal order. The voice in Dune is the prescriptive class and requires and enforces compliance. As part of his ongoing class identity and representation studies in British TV drama, Christopher Hogg of the School of Media and Communications at the University of Westminster has interviewed several actors, including the award-winning English star Julie Hesmondholf. In a 2020 interview, he explored the process of casting with a particular focus on regionality and class identity as factors influencing Hesmondholf's casting opportunities. She comments that regional accents, for the most part, are relegated to a distinct and regimented pecking order, rarely winning the prize parts. For those who do not assume RP, it can come at a heavy cost, for they may be cast as sex workers, teenage mums, or young grandmothers on council estates. Hesmondholf from Lancashire wanted to keep her holistic voice. She said, quote, My accent seems to lend itself to parts associated with professional working class identities, such as nurses and teachers. I don't get cast as doctors or lawyers. End quote. As an Australian, I had changed my accent to RP and was cast as a lawyer, a member of the aristocracy, or someone of means. The acoustic horizon of accents stretches far and wide, zipping past international borders and dropping insidiously into our screens, where power and authority is protected by being subtly reinforced into our compliant and well-trained ears. Holistic voices need to be heard in their own right, without an assumed and belittling characterization by the prescriptive class. With our ears open to what is being said, rather than how it is being said, we can create a more equitable society by better understanding and slowly dismantling the sonic social order. And thank you for listening. Thanks very much for tuning in to this episode of The Place of Sound. But before I sign off, a couple of quick notes. A reminder that what we've listened to here on this show is only a fraction of the work produced in association with this project. If you're interested in checking out more, have a look at theplaceofsound.ca. 
where you're not only able to hear more audio media, but in some cases, to see some of the original photos and the writing that students produce to go along with it. There's also a featured work section on the site's blog, where you can access some notable individual projects. And in the classes section, you can have a look at some of the work produced in each of the previous semesters. And lastly, under the listen link, you're able to access the show's archive and listen back to any episode of the show you'd like to hear. But in the meantime, keep your ear out for upcoming episodes of the show, which air on CKCU Radio every other Monday at 6.30 p.m. and are available wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, thanks for listening to The Place of Sound.